0: You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida. Come build with us on Christ, Our Firm Foundation. To learn more, visit fbcfreeport.life. I hope you're ready to jump into... uh... God's word with me this morning and I want to invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11 and we're really going to key off of one verse today but in saying that we're going to cover two chapters. So um, (laughs) we are landing the plane for this series and those of you who have have been here for the whole flight, you probably feel like it was an international flight. So (laughs) I want to say that I appreciate the way our church has participated uh, faithfully. Uh, I know some of you haven't missed a message, or if you have, it was one or two because you were out of town or sick. So I want to commend you because um, you now have uh, the continuity of an entire book of God's Word and you you've gotten uh the full picture of this book of Nehemiah and that I think is is uh, important picture uh in our day and time with all that's going on so uh we're going to cover two rather lengthy chapters there's 36 verses in chapter 11 all right uh, and then there's uh we're going to cover the the first 26 verses of chapter 12 as one lump sum, one major theme. And the reason we're able to to do this and, and are choosing to do this, uh, for one, this is a long, long, exhaustive list of names, uh, of, of records. And uh, so it's kind of a historical record of all the people that were involved in this story. And we're not going to go through all these names. that That would probably... Uh, just, just do us in. Uh, just trying to pronounce these names. But we have one sermon to go in this series, uh, which we entitled "A Daring Response to Dark Days," and that's why I think it's so vital, because the need of the hour is courage uh, that comes from knowing that God is on His throne, not a, a false bravado, you know, with your chest out, and I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna be tough. But no, a a, a Just an indomitable, unshakable confidence that Jesus is right now sitting on His throne. Amen? That's the kind of uh, faith that will breed the kind of courage um, that that we need. And so, we'll finish up next week with this series. But today, uh, I, I think I took a little liberty with the title A little creative, perhaps, but I want to talk about going from ghost town to holy ghost town. So there's a little bit of a play on word there, and it'll tie us into the greater story of what God is doing um, as we come into the New Testament with Jesus emerging on the scene and even into uh, his kingdom as it takes shape. But from ghost town to holy ghost town. One of the most eerie pictures that I personally saw um, coming out of this whole pandemic was early on, uh, really before COVID had had touched us. I mean, it was on our shores, but it hadn't really become the main story. But in China, if you remember watching the news, they would show these mega cities um, in China, with tens of millions of people, and you, you would see the, 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 the aerial footage, not a soul in sight, just tumbleweeds. Uh, you know, five, ten-lane highways that would have been full of, of traffic with millions of people moving around like ants, not a single car in sight. Um, it was eerie to see a ghost town, a ghost city in uh, our generation. I I mean just a a, a picture that is kind of haunting really. Well the church uh, that's kind of a picture of the church and the direction that we're trending. Um, The statistics on church in our country is that 65 percent of Americans still profess to be Christian and that number by the way has plummeted. That's low if you look at where some of you started in your in your teens, sixty five percent, and yet less than twenty percent uh, regularly attend uh, worship. In other words, less than twenty percent in our Christian nation. That's two out of ten people in our nation <clears throat> make God and, and the worship of God with God's people uh, a focus or a priority in their life. That's a very telling. Uh, statistic, which, um, praise God, we've got a good crowd today, all right? But you know and I know that all around America right now, um, churches are vacuous, pews are empty. Uh, In the Southern Baptist, which is what we are, and, and you may or may not be, but as someone has pointed out, this is the largest denomination, Protestant denomination in our country. As the Southern Baptist goes, so goes the nation, some have said. So there's a case to be made that we're kind of a, uh, a canary, if you will, for for how things are going um, in the, in the religious climate of our country. But two years ago in 2020, we had the largest single year decline in membership in a hundred years. You think about that, a quarter million, 280,000 people left the Southern Baptist Church, never to return. And and it put us in a, it kind of dazed us, but then this year rolled around and and we broke that record, (laughs) some 400 plus thousand, almost half a million people in one year in our country left. Not just didn't show up. They they said, "Take me off the roll," <laughs> all right. They're they're just done with meeting with God's people, and so we are in a bleak time. And there's there's different factors here. The 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 large and looming factor is is that the church is not at the center anymore. Um, the public schools are at the center. Government is at the center, um, and, and and secularizing influences are holding sway over our thinking. So we are a a rapidly secularizing nation, which is pushing God out of the center. And we're in a real spiritual battle. So why am I optimistic? Because I am. Why am I optimistic in in these days? There is a columnist, a newspaper columnist named Walter Winchell, and if you know him, I apologize for not knowing how to say his name, but here's a fantastic quote. He says, an optimist is someone who gets treed by a lion but enjoys the scenery, all right? You let that sink in, all right? An optimist gets treed by a lion and they're sitting up there enjoying the scenery, all right? That's an optimist. Now, the reason I'm an optimist is because in our story, in in, in the The story of the Bible, Christ gets treed like a lamb. The sins of the world chase Him up the cross. He goes voluntarily, treed like a lamb. I won't say He enjoys the scenery. It was hell. It was anguish. Blood and water poured from His body. He was pierced for our sins, for the sins of the world. But right there at the end, before he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. And the lamb on the tree went down into the grave and he came out of the cave roaring like a lion. That's why I'm an optimist. Because our Savior is the lion and he will tree his enemies. That's why I'm an optimist. The most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. We know that these two work together. The Old Testament foreshadowed the New Testament, the the coming of the Lord. And then he came. And then the New Testament was was looking back and making sense of the Old Testament. Expanding and expounding. and, And it's all about Jesus. The written word exalts the living word. It says, this is your man This is the Lord God. Put your trust in him. He will save you. He will revolutionize your life. He will reform you and change you. But then the most oft quoted verse, Psalm 110 verse one says, the Lord said to my Lord, a little bit to unpack here, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the number one Old Testament verse quoted. That's That's the theme of the old that emerges in the news. Now, think with me. The Lord said to my Lord, This is God the Father talking to God the Son, okay? And what did he say? He said, Sit at my right hand. Now, when did Jesus do that? Do you remember? Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father 40 days after he came out of the grave roaring like a lion. Remember, he went up. Everyone's watching. Where was he going? Well, he said it was finished. His job was done. He was going to put his feet up in the easy chair. Alright? And then he said, the father said, now you sit down, you did your job, you did what you came to do. He says, now I'm going to put all your enemies under your feet. You're going to prop your feet up. Don't, yeah, just sit down. And so what is Jesus, what has God been doing ever since the cross? He's been trampling one enemy after another. Now, you've watched boxing before. Sometimes uh, the first round goes to so-and-so and and the second round goes to so-and-so. It appears like we're getting whooped in round whatever this is. It's not looking good for us. But the whole match doesn't hang on one round. And what I'm telling you is you have to have a long view on redemptive history. All right? This is a dramatic battle between God and His enemies. But Jesus said it's finished. He will emerge the victor. And that's why we're optimists. And that's why today I can tell you, God is doing the work. And it may look like a ghost town today. But what is God doing? He's taking his church, which may be a ghost town, but he's going to turn it into, and he is turning it into a holy ghost town. And it's going to take over the world. That's the good news. So let's pray, and we're going to we're going to just uh, Think about the the, the themes that emerge from these two chapters. Let's pray together. Father God, help me to just make plain what your word is saying. Lord, there's a lot of names, a lot of details, a lot we could get just bogged down in today. I pray you would help me as I seek to lift the the big ideas here and the the applications that we can uh, apply to our own life and our own day. Lord, we pray that you would teach us in such a way that you would be honored and glorified and that we would be full of hope. And and, and even uh, if we need to have it, a pebble in our shoe today, Lord, that we would not be able to walk out of here the same way we came in, that you would disturb us in appropriate ways, shake us and, and, and rouse us, that we would be on your mission for your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Jerusalem was a ghost town. We know it's because of their sin uh, God judged them they they were laid flat all right I don't know if you've ever seen anything now I think of nine eleven I think of the twin towers being laid flat. That's a stark picture that's maybe something from our generation that gives us a touch point to what they went through. You remember where you were for nine eleven i was in I was in my college dorm, and my roommates ran in, turned on the TV, and it was one of those days that marked me, marked all of us. Well, this was a, a period that marked them. They were just laid flat. Jerusalem was in smoke and ruin, and then the people were carried off in exile. And that brings us to the book of Nehemiah, where the rebuilding is happening and the repopulation. But in chapter 7, as you might recall in verse 4, it says this, says the city was large and spacious. Now, this is relative to how many people are there. In fact, Jerusalem was built back smaller. Jerusalem uh, was much smaller than it originally was. But large and space, spacious, says, because there were few people in it. So this is a big, empty... Um, area has a wall around it now but everything is still in heaps. All right, after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, you could drive around and just see heaps of people's furniture outside their house. Their whole inside of the house was just dumped outside in a trash heap. And that's Jerusalem right now. It's an empty, an un- uninhabitable ghost town. But at least they've got a wall up now where they can begin the rebuilding process. Now, one of my uh New Testament uh, teachers in college uh, he has a great commentary set but he, he noted that there was a fear of, of moving back in and we can appreciate that. Uh, this is this is a about a hundred or so years before that, that the siege happened 586 BC and we're at 445 BC thereabouts but their oral retelling of that dramatic catastrophic event is something that generation to generation, uh, got passed down, and and so there was a real fear here about moving back in. Um, the, the 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 siege was still very much alive in their in their imaginations. The the grandparents telling uh, the grandchildren recounting what their parents had passed on to them, and and you know how we tell stories. All right, anyone here that has someone in the navy in your story, you know, those stories don't get smaller. <laughs> all right. Uh, my papa was Navy, and, and he, by the time he, you know, told told his last story, you would think he was General MacArthur. So, <laughs> but that's how it goes. So you you can imagine the fear that was elicited when they thought about going back into that city. This was a city uh, that had targets on it on its back. It had a lot of enemies. It was a strategic city, and people wanted that city for themselves, and so. Um, This was the case. Um, God's people, we can relate to this. We have a lot of enemies. And what's happening right now is it's becoming increasingly more difficult to identify as a Christian. Uh, That used to get you some cultural capital, all right, you could. You used to. It wasn't that long ago when you you would tell your in an interview for your job that you were an out, upstanding Christian person. All right, it used to got used to get you some points. Not anymore. Your kids go to school. If kids know they're Christians, well, you can be one kind of Christian. You can be a cultural Christian. You know, a Republican. You can be that around here, but you can't be a you know a fanatical. You know, you believe the Bible. believe that you can't do that anymore and still be cool Um, you can't let people know you're a Christian in the workplace Uh, you can be a cultural Christian you can be a Republican but you can't let people know you believe the Bible which by the way is the the orthodox definition of Christian uh, someone who believes the Bible (laughs) okay um, and so we're at a place in history where that will cost you I think that is by and large uh, driving this this phenomenon where God's people are ghosting on God. We're not showing up because there's a lot of people who don't want to count that cost. And I I say that to you and you're here, all right? And and so I guess I could say in a positive way, you are counting the cost. You are. I don't know why uh, or what brought you here today, but. You took a risk. You took a gamble. Um, and, and, and I commend you for it. But what we see as God's people um, in our nation ghost on God and, and walk away from God and don't have Him at the center, we're seeing our nation in ruins, much like Jerusalem was. We're seeing homes and marriages decimated. Uh, we have a whole generation now of, of of young people who don't want to get married because they have witnessed marriage when God was not at the center. That's not to say there wasn't church and religion involved. That's different than God at the center. You you you, you follow me there? And in fact, this church is a wonderful example. There are there are uh, many godly marriages and families. Uh, in this church, who have made it almost to the finish line. Why? Because you've kept God at the center. (laughs) Sorry if I put that in a way that's... I mean, hey, sorry, I I ran cross-country. I look forward to the finish line, all right? I realize we're metaphorically talking about your death, but um, just just work with me here. I've got a lot to say this morning. (laughs) But the point is, there's a lot of people that haven't witnessed what you have. A marriage and a home and a family built with God at the center. And so our, we have a generation walking away from marriage and family. And you know what? In that vacuum, the our greedy government stepping in saying, you know, you got people talking about the government's here to help, and and, <laughs> and we're just gonna step in and we'll we'll be the nanny state. You got a problem? You need some, you need a little, you need some lunch money today? We got you covered. Um, that ends in tyranny, by the way. That ends with us being slaves, by the way. Um, and, and but why do we have a, a? Why are people thirty and under so uh, enamored with with socialism? Uh, Venezuela, they're 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 rioting at Walmart for a loaf of bread. It's not called Walmart. It's called Brokemark. But why? How can that exist? And and in our age of the internet, when you know that exists, you still are enamored. Well, that's the deception that happens when you walk away from God. And that's where we're at. But Nehemiah comes in, sent by God, and the people rally with him because God is going to turn a ghost town into a Holy Ghost town. And let me, let me just briefly bring us up to speed on, on, on our, our, our series here. In chapters 1 through 6, they built the wall in 52 days. It wasn't pretty, okay? It wasn't pretty, but it got the job done and it kept their enemies out. 52 days. Everyone at the end of that, including the enemies, enemies said, uh, there's no way they did this. These guys were just in deplorable conditions. They said, clearly God did this. So it was a a real victory that they knew God's hand was on them. And so in chapter 7, with the walls around them, they did a head count, a census, and chapters eight through 10, God's law comes into the picture, and it becomes the central theme of this story. God's law is read um, for hours on end. There's Bible conferences held, the seventh month of the year with the festivals is reinstituted around the law. And what happens? Conviction. People are weeping over their sin. Confession. People are putting distance between themselves and a life that doesn't please God. We talked about closing the book on sin in our life. It doesn't have to be your future just because it has dominated your life and your family for generations. And then there's the covenant renewal. They're coming back in in right relationship with God. God at the center with His Word guiding them. In verse 28 of chapter 10, It says they separated themselves, all right? They're surrounded by pagans, and I say pagans not as an insult. A pagan just means they worship a God other than our God. The Bible is God-centric, all right? The Bible's God-centric. It starts with God at the center. If you don't have God at the center, then it calls you pagan, all right? God's people, and we can relate to this because we live in a pluralistic, uh, you know, multicultural nation where we say all things are equal. You know, you got your truth, I got mine. So we know what it is to get swept up in this pagan mindset that really subverts God's word. But they separated themselves and it says they did it unto God's law. So... They're not saying, oh, we're better than you. They're saying, we don't want to go this path of false idolatry, which leads to death, which is a deception. We want to go on the path of righteousness, which leads to life. And we believe this is the way. And so they separated themselves. Now, let me just say, that is the definition of, of the word holy. We're talking about a holy ghost town today. The word holy, if you'll follow with me here, means set apart, all right? It means means to take something or take yourself from where you're at and remove yourself to over here, set apart for something or someone. And so you read in the Bible, often it says that God's people were holy unto the Lord. All right. They were set apart unto the Lord. They were picked out to set and and, and put on a new path to live unto the Lord according to his word. That's what it means to be holy. Okay, you can be holy unto the Lord. Um, The Olympics are on right now. Olympic athletes, they are holy unto their sport. All right. They are set apart for four years or however long the the time is there. I think it's four. I haven't watched in a while. (laughs) Uh, too much politics for me, but uh, for four years, a, a sprinter like Usain Boltz, I say him because my wife danced at a commercial with him once, I'll show it to you. But Usain Boltz, for four years, he was set apart unto training to break all those records and take the world by storm. He could not have done what he did with all that raw natural talent unless he was set apart unto that. That's what it means to be holy unto the Lord set apart unto him and we'll never be and do all that God's called us to be or do in our generation we'll never turn our generation back to God unless you today and I today say I want to be set apart unto the Lord and that's what they did that's what we must do Um, you don't win an Olympic gold medal with half measures and half-hearted effort it takes wholehearted devotion And does God deserve less than a relay race? Does He? Does He deserve less than the things that we devote ourselves to? He does not. Well, we get back into verse 10, and I didn't cover this last week, but they took uh, two priorities that they focused on. Their households, all right, to have uh, godly marriages. And the economy, to have a godly economy. The the word economy means house law. So the the households were to do business in a way that pleased God. And so that was their focus. Um, Their houses and the house of God. I want to just say this. Um, The most radical thing... The most countercultural thing, the most ambitious thing that you and I could ever do is to build our own houses and to build the house of God, the church, in a way that pleases God unto His, unto the Lord. That's the most radical thing we could do. And there's so many voices carrying us to say, go do these grand, lofty things. But these are the basic building blocks that God has instituted. You go back to Genesis 1. The creation mandate. The first instructions to Adam and Eve to build their house. Be fruitful, multiply, take dominion, build your house. Expand God's kingdom by expanding your own house. And so we see that. And that that entails that we live holy seven days a week. Holiness unto the Lord is a, a moment by moment thing. It's not a Sunday for an hour thing. Uh, we, we were in Sunday school today and and, and Paul got in big trouble because he called the high priest a whitewashed tomb that God was going to smack down. <laughs> well, he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't supposed to say that publicly, but he wasn't wrong. Um, when you think you can show up and, and, and put God in a box and, and, and give him one hour a day, but then you think that you're going to live with yourself at the center for the rest of your life, you are being a whitewashed tomb because you're trying to fool us today while you do your thing every, all the rest of the time. God will strike d- down anyone who's not his. Um, and that was a little bit of a tangent, so I'll, I'll try to smooth that out in a minute. Um, but that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 11. Um, I mean, let me read this for us, okay? This is kind of the, the, the verse that we'll, we'll camp out on for the remainder of our time until we, um, until we close here. Verse 1, it says this. It says, Now the leaders of the people, they settled in Jerusalem. You with me? And then it says, The rest of the people, they cast lots, All right, kind of like rolling dice here, all right? to bring one out of every ten of the people to live in Jerusalem. And then we have our our key word here, the holy city. While the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns, these rural communities surrounding Jerusalem, they were to remain in their own towns. So, here's the big picture here. Jerusalem, as it's being rebuilt Here's the purpose that God envisions it is to be set apart as a holy city. That's the word here. It is to be a holy city. In other words, I want you to think with me. Jerusalem has a mission. This new Jerusalem being rebuilt from the ashes as a holy city, it has a mission. It is to represent God to all the nations, it is to be a light shining in darkness. And if you remember the Abrahamic promise that God said through your seed, that's God's people, and now they're coming together to rebuild and repopulate this ghost town. It's through this big project that God is once again going to be represented as the offer of salvation. I don't know how you think of God right now. If you think of Him as a mean unapproachable curmudgeon who just hates everything good. I don't know what ideas you have, but God is holy. There's no blemish in Him. He's set apart from His creation, from a sinful mankind. He is holy. And sinners cannot approach Him. That's not a bad thing about God. That's a bad thing about us. (laughs) Alright? Don't get it twisted. God being holy... He's not the problem. We are. He's the glory that outshines all glories. I don't know what captivates you and mesmerizes you, and I don't know if it's YouTube videos about cats, if it's entertainment, if it's these aspirations or those aspirations, all of that pales in comparison to God. You were made for God. You want you were. And you're gonna, we've got country music songs to prove it. Looking for love in all the wrong places, hello? That's what we look like when we go away from God to find happiness elsewhere. Jeremiah said it this way we're like crazy people trying to dig broken wells. We're so thirsty for happiness and fulfillment. But the boyfriend or the this addiction, that addiction, this indulgence, that indulgence, this activity, that good, bad, and the ugly, none of it can take God's place. And when you go there to drink deeply and be satisfied, if it's not God, the Bible says you're scooping dirt into your mouth and you're choking and you're choking and you still keep going back. That's a picture of sinful humanity apart from God. That's us. That's all of us. That's me. That's me. Before Jesus Christ, that's us. But salvation is being offered. That's what this is all about. This ghost town being turned into a holy ghost town is so that it will shine and people will see that nothing in all of the world competes with God. And His love, His redeeming love, it's meant... To send the nations running in through the gates saying, I'm thirsty, I want bread, I'm hungry, feed me, nourish me, I want this from God. That's what it's about. So, how does it happen? Well, notice the leaders go first. The leaders go first. No one wants to go into Jerusalem, no one wants to come into the church, no one wants to stand against the angry mob, the enemies outside. No one wants to stand against the sexual ethic of Freeport. Do you realize this town openly promotes and tolerates homosexuality? You know it and I know it. We all know it. We're trying to normalize. It's all over Facebook. Just, this is just an alternative lifestyle. What did God say in Romans? He said it's an abomination to God. It's contrary it's contrary. And here's the truth. Am I I picking on that sin? No, I'm just calling it out because it's the one we all... It's the elephant in the room in Freeport. (laughs) There's bad traffic and homosexuality in Freeport. We all know it. Those are two of the elephants in the room. (laughs) It's not the only sin. i got elephants in my life. There's things in my life that God says are wicked and I tolerate them and I accept them. And they are death, not life. (laughs) And there's things in your life. And here's the truth, I I ticked off a lot of people uh, last month because I talked about things from the pulpit, and that's what they said. But eventually I'm going to offend everyone because I have to talk about all the sins that the Bible calls sins. Eventually I'm going to offend myself. One day I'm going to storm out of here mad as a hornet's nest because I offended myself. And Brother Lloyd's going to have to step in and finish the sermon. I just won't be able to stand it. But that's so God can work in our lives so that we don't die as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Because that's what Freeport wants to do. I know I can't say that about Freeport. I'm new. Well, that's what every place wants to do. Every place where there are sinners, there is sin. There's a need for the gospel. God's not the problem. We're the problem. God's the answer. God's the salvation. And that's for you if you're here and you're a teenager or you and you're in your 80s or you and you're a preacher. It's for all of us. So the leaders come first. No one wants to go in. It takes courage. It takes bravery to come in the gospel in a hostile territory. All right. I'll be honest. After there was an uproar on Facebook on things I had preached... There's bad reviews on our Google map right now because I'm teaching bad things. I thought I might get punched in the mouth eventually. I got scared. I, I had to go talk to Espy and get a pep talk. I got nervous. I did. I locked my doors at night and kept a watchful eye. It takes courage to go first. <laughs> Look, it takes courage for me to say this up here. I'm not going to win a lot of friends if I step on so many toes. But it takes courage to go first, to rebuild the cities, to be a shining light in the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it, but somebody's got to go first. Amen. Amen. You got to go first in your workplace. you got to go first in your school if you're there. you got to go first with your friends. you got to go first. And I don't mean you go in there with guns blazing. I do that sometimes. I've heard I've done that. I've heard I've gone in with guns blazing before. The truth is, if you've been around me, if you've ever had coffee with me, I take the gloves off up here and punch because I'm not punching any one person. But if you've sat with me for coffee, I don't punch. I console. I listen. I I I shepherd, I, I say, man, I you you I'm vulnerable. I I want you to know that when you tell me what's going on in your life, that I've been there. That I can be a tour guide. I'm not just a, a, a guy with an info commercial. I've been in sin. I've been so stuck in sin, you couldn't pull me out with three trucks. I've been there. I've been in the cycle of guilt and shame and addiction. I've been depra- I've had a decade of depression. Are you, are you sad? Are you stuck? I've been there. I'm not. self-righteous person looking down my nose i am a sinner saved by grace and i punch hard at sin but i want sinners and saints to be comforted by the gospel i do i know you do it's a both in approach guys paul said we tear down and demolish strongholds when ideologies and, and and lies set themselves up and say this is the right way that's against God. Paul says we de- we do demolition on that. That's the Bible. I don't know where who, what you may have heard or how you learned Jesus, but that's in the Bible. But on the other hand, he says we gently restore those who are caught in sin. That's what we do. It's both and it's both in. And. and it takes precision. All right? Sometimes in demolition, sometimes you just swing the ball, but when you get down with one person or a small group of people, it takes precision. You wanna, you don't wanna be a butcher. You wanna, you wanna cut carefully, help people thoughtfully. It's both and. We're not one dimensional in our approach here, but the point I guess that I'm wanting to make is. Someone had to go first. They cast lots, and then there were volunteers. The volunteers were people who said, I'll go first. The casting lots was because no one else wanted to go first. (laughs) All right? And and so that's how God's people began to fill up this ghost town. It took courage and faith in the face of fear. But as they came in, notice um, the men went first. All right? The draft was for men. One in ten men and their families were brought in. And then notice uh, there were two leading families. And by the way, one of these leading families was Perez. Um, If you don't know Perez, he was born illegitimately. He had a lousy start. His dad committed adultery with his mother, who was the father's daughter-in-law. All right, this is Jerry Springer stuff. Alright, you remember you remember the story? Perez's dad was his grandfather. That's twisted. And Perez's mother dressed up like a prostitute to seduce the grandfather because the grandfather didn't keep his word to give a son to the daughter and she was sitting there as a widow impoverished. It was a Jerry Springer episode and this little baby was born. What I'm saying is your start doesn't have to define your finish. Because Perez went on and some 400 years later, his... Offspring, his godly lineage are filling up this ghost town. It says 468, it says men of standing. Perez set a godly example and he built a generational uh, 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 legacy of faithful families and these 460 men of standing. These are leaders, towering, godly, influential men with their strong, towering, influential families. And they said, we'll go first. We'll go in. I don't care where you start. I don't care where you're at right now. If you're stuck or you're, you're, you're wondering, God can take you and do something amazing for His name. Amen? Amen. My grandfather... Who's gone now? He was an alcoholic, angry, bitter. But God saved him at 37, and he spent almost until he was almost 100 when he died. But he spent the rest of his life serving God, a faithful witness. And my grandmother the same. They, when God changed them and saved them, they came back and lived for Jesus. So, that's what's happening: courageous people going first, and then the worship team goes, the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the musicians. They fill up the city. Godly people, worshiping people, they fill up the city. And what we end up seeing when the the dust settles, what do we see? We see the temple is at the center, the household of God is at the center with all of its buzzing activity and vibrancy. The church used to be at the center. And then all the households and the economies are growing around God at the center. That's what we see. That's what we see. This has been a redundant message in this series, and we're coming to an end here, but why have we hit on this message over and over again, God at the center? Because that's the message of Nehemiah. When God's at the center, he is the, His joy that He gives becomes our strength, and we build out of that. We build our homes. We build our families. We build economies. Why does the government have its hand in all of our taxes and economy right now? Why do they tell us when if we can or cannot shut down our own business that we started? Because long ago, we turned our back on God. He used to tell us how to run our homes and our families and our businesses. He used to tell us. But when we said no to him, in that vacuum came a demigod. And the status religion has been growing ever since. It's a monster. Thankfully, we've got DeSantis. <laughs> but that's a side story. Here's what I want to tell you. Uh, This is a quote here. Warren Wiersbe says, never underestimate the importance of simply being physically present in a place where God wants you to be. You don't have to be the hero of the story. In fact, you're not. God is. But never underestimate your small part. We get to be small parts of just being present, of having the courage to show up in the ghost town and say, count me in. I'll be here. I'll do simple things. I'll, I'll be faithful to God. He says, you may not be asked to perform some dramatic ministry. Usually I want to hide after I've preached. Can I just tell you? Because I don't know which emails are going to fly at me on Monday. I don't know who's mad. Who's, I don't know who's upset, who's going to leave. I, dramatic, may, it may seem fun, but on Monday all, all I want to do is go fishing. I want to take my wife out on a date. I just want to build a family. What kids I just want to get my family around the table and just say, let's focus on the the good things in life. Let's read a story in the Bible about how Jesus is the hero. That's all I want to do. If there was someone else that would step up and preach, I think I might do a different job. Dramatic is overrated. But simply being there, this quote says, is ministry. The men, the women. The children, we add the teenagers, everyone who helped to repopulate the city of Jerusalem, they were serving God. You feel that? Just being present, being faithful to do the little things God called you to do. Serving God, set apart, holy unto the Lord. That's a good life. That's the kind of life Jesus will say at the end, well done. You never made any newspaper headlines, nothing flashy. But Jesus is keeping notes. He's keeping score. You don't earn your salvation, but you earn your rewards. Well done. Well done. Are you living for that? Are you living for flashy? For the approval of men? Are you just aching and looking to hear your beloved Savior say to you on that fateful day when you cross the finish line, get in here. Well done. The church is the new Jerusalem. You read Revelation 21.2. It is the new Jerusalem, the holy city. It is coming down. And Daniel says it's coming down and it's like a mountain and it's going to fill the earth. That's why I'm an optimist. Because light is pushing out darkness. We're in a valley right now, but the mountain of God's kingdom is swallowing it up. You may not see that. You may die before you see that. But your faithfulness today matters because you and I are helping to turn the tide in our generation to repopulate the ghost town that is the church in our day. Your great, great, great grandchildren may see that glorious day when the mountain fills the earth. But not if you're not faithful. You kick the can down the road, the responsibility down the road. It may be generations before we come out of this valley. I am going to pour my life out so that my generation, future generation, Lord willing, they will live to see the mountaintop of God's kingdom as it fills the earth. That's what I want. So what we're talking about, and I'll close with this. I appreciate you leaning in here. What we're talking about is God doing a new work in our day. Moving us from ghost town to holy ghost town. And the, 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 the God of our salvation who sent Jesus to the cross and rose Him out of the grave. He forgives you of your sin when you just put your trust in Him. Do you realize that? It's the best deal in town. Do you understand that? Get off the treadmill of seeking approval. You don't have to do anything to earn God's approval. You can't. You can only receive it as a gift. We are saved not because we are good, but because God is good. And God sent Jesus to die in the place of sinners. We trust in his goodness on our behalf. Have you done that? If you have, then the Bible says it's a brand new day for you, but it's just the start. The the long road, the exciting road, the optimistic road that we're to be on is the work that God wants to do of transforming and sanctifying and making us holy. You see that? It's just the beginning. But you have to have a commitment and a faith in a God who's committed to you over the long haul. This is not a one night done. This is your life until you take your last breath. This is God doing His work in you. It is a slow, steady work. Sometimes it's imperceptible. You don't even notice that you've even grown an inch. Kind of like that little boy or little girl saying, Measure me. Have I grown an inch? It's only after we look back sometimes a whole year, a whole decade, and say, wow, God has grown me. There's two ways to do that. Try to do it yourself this year. You can try to get your family in order, get your marriage in order. Alright, get your education in order, get your career in order, get, your relationship, get yourself in order. You can try to get yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, self-righteousness. Let me tell you how that ends. It ends with you exhausted. Some of you say, well, that's actually where I'm at right now. I, you tell me it gets worse? Yeah, if you keep trying to do it yourself. You're going to get so frustrated this year. You're going to quit so many times this year. You're going to be so bitter. No one's going to want to be around you. There's another way you can do it. I was reading a book on Case for Classical Christian Education. And it says this, true education reform, talking about reform here, education in particular, but apply it to your life. It begins in rest. Catch that? begins in rest. It begins with grace. We cannot hope to be effective in this work. Don't you want to be effective? We can't expect to be effective in this work unless we get the gospel straight. Amen? And having gotten it straight, understanding it clearly in our mind to then rest in the promises of God. That's where I want you today. I don't know all of you. I don't know your stories. But I know that's what I want for you. I don't want you on that treadmill of trying to figure it out in your own strength. I want you resting in the promises of God. I want you to have a great year this year. September is kind of the start for a lot of us. We're back from summer vacation. School's in. Work's back into a grind. I want you to have a good start this year. I want you resting in Jesus. So confident that He's got this. That when you fall, He's going to pick you up that you're going to be better a year from now than you are right now by the grace of God because He put His Spirit in you. Ephesians 3.20 says, To Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power at work in you, to Him be glory. Put your trust in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Put your trust in God today. He will do more in your life this year as you rest in Him than you could do in ten lifetimes of doing it in your own. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Are you ready to take God at his word? We invite you right now to respond by faith and obedience. If you'd like to speak further about spiritual matters or to learn more about First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida, contact us today at fbcfreeport.life.